Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 31. It's September 26, 2014. The Wellsteading Lifestyle is about all things that relate to you building wealth and building your personal freedom. Money may not buy happiness, but it can buy freedom. And so in each episode, we focus on various elements of the 10 wealth building principles. And incidentally, if you haven't listened to those, go back and review the first 10 episodes of this podcast. That's where I lay out my philosophy and the foundation that I've used in my own personal life for building wealth. As many of the listeners have pointed out in the reviews of this podcast, the principles are no fluff, no BS, no hype, no marketing or trying to sell you products. It's simply my core philosophy, what I learned over nearly 30 years of not only studying the blue-collar and millionaire-next-door type lifestyles, but my participation in it. Wealth isn't about the money. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. It's an enjoyable lifestyle, and I encourage you and your spouse, your partner, your family, everybody to get on board. So go back, listen to those episodes, see what you think, see if you can apply them in your life, see if you can glean some truth from them. Now in today's episode, I've received several listener questions about mortgages and, and debt in general, but mortgages in specific. And I've entitled this episode, Mortgage Debt is Flax and Shackles. And in a little bit, I'll get to exactly why I mentioned that, flax and shackles. Some of you may not be familiar with the term flaxen. Now, I don't hate debt. I'm not an enemy of all debt, but I think it needs to be used responsibly and with extreme caution and care. Wealth building principle number two is live debt free. And what I'm trying to emphasize there is that that should be something that you learn to do. It may not be something you're doing right now. You may be burdened down now with credit card debt, other types of consumer debts, mortgage debt, car debt. If you want to be wealthy, if you want to be financially independent, if you want to do that living on a middle class income, then you're drastically reducing your opportunities by having all that excess debt. Now part of that is because the huge amount of your wealth that you end up spending in the interest payments, particularly if it's unsecured debt like credit card debt. But what wealth building principle means more than anything about living a debt free life, it's not about the debt, it's really about the overall consumption. You have to learn to bridle your passions. The problem with debt isn't so much the interest, it's the fact that the leverage, the ability to have the debt, encourages you to go out and consume things that you can't afford. It makes you think you have more money than you do. And even if you're not using that leverage and your neighbor is, well, th then it inflates pricing, right? That's sort of where we come up with this problem of fractional banking. That's one of the ways that the banks and the government can create inflation, by injecting more cash into the economy than you would otherwise have simply by what you're earning and saving. So to me, that's the real problem of it. It fosters overconsumption. So when we drill down here and we start talking about mortgage debt, I'm less concerned about the interest rate, about whether you're paying the mortgage back with dollars that have lost value because of inflation, or whether you can, again, borrow money at a lower rate and then turn around and invest that and make more money by putting that in the stock market or some other kind of uh, appreciating asset. And those are all factors we want to consider. And we can do those on the back of the envelope on a piece of scratch paper. If we do the math, it's easy to figure it out. And incidentally, I usually find people often talk about borrowing the money for their home on a cheap interest rate and then turning around and, you know, and reinvesting that, say, in the stock market and, you know, putting that money to work for them. That's not really what I see in practice. What I see in practice is they end up buying a bigger vehicle. They end up putting in a pool. They take a vacation. They usually don't invest that money and make more on it. They usually end up spending it on something else. Because if you live in that big house, it comes with a big lifestyle. You have to have big furniture. You have to have big yard landscaping. You have to have a nice big car to impress your neighbors. If your neighbor goes to Paris on vacation, then you have to, you know, one-up them and you have to go to Budapest or somewhere. 
So it's not just the house. It's not just the mortgage. It's all the spending that comes with it. So let's look at mortgages in particular. The questions I generally get are, should I pay my mortgage off early? Before I answer that, let me just give you some of my thoughts on what you shouldn't do when it comes to a mortgage. I'm not saying you shouldn't ever have one. I'm saying that you should be responsible with it. So number one, in my opinion, you should always have a fixed rate mortgage. You don't want any variable mortgages. That's what not only got individuals but the entire country into a major recession in 2008. Literally millions of people had adjustable and variable rate mortgages. And when those rates were reset, when the yields went up, and people had to pay additional money each month to cover their mortgage, they couldn't afford it. They were living paycheck to paycheck as it was. That's one of the big reasons that the real estate market collapsed. You don't want to get yourself in that situation. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Get the fixed rate mortgage. If rates ever go down, you can do the math to see if it makes sense for you to refinance. Usually, but not always. Usually when you refinance, there's a fee associated with it. It depends on your, on your credit score, on the bank, on how bad the economy is, you know, how bad they're trying to generate fees versus attract new customers. I know many years ago when I had a mortgage, I think I refinanced as many as three or four times and I didn't have to pay any points or any fees. I just went from bank to bank and they bid for my business and they covered the expenses. So number one, don't get a variable rate mortgage. Only get a fixed. You lock in your payments. That way you know what you're subject to. The second thing I would add about mortgages, don't stretch yourself out too thin. Don't financially engineer your cash flow every month and delude yourself into thinking that you're going to be able to make a larger mortgage payment than you can actually afford. Again, that's how people get themselves in trouble. They bite off way more than they can chew. Realistically, look at what your household income is. If you're basing this on your income and your spouse's income, you know, depending on, on what age you are, if your spouse is in childbearing years, think about it. Is your wife going to get pregnant? Is she going to have to drop out of the workforce? And even if it's not dropping out forever, she's still going to have to take some time off to have a baby. How's that going to impact you? Are you going to really be able to meet that mortgage payment? And if you do have additional children, that additional cost, how's that going to impact your ability to meet that mortgage payment? And if you do have a larger family, are you going to fit in that house? Are you going to need another bedroom or more room? And I guess what I'm going to on this is, are you sure you need to be buying that house in the first place? Maybe you should just rent for a while. Until the size of your family is, is a little bit more set and, and a little bit more established, renting is a very good option. Renting is also a very good option if you think you might be getting a job promotion and leaving the area. The housing market has recovered in the past few years, but it's still very weak. Even in the glory days, flipping houses wasn't easy. It was very location dependent, and it was always a sketchy way to make money. I've always thought that for everybody that made money, there were probably 10 people that lost. So consider renting. Maybe you don't have to buy at all. And the reason I bring that up is, that mortgage you're taking out, you're going to be taking it out for 15 or say 30 years. Well, if you want to live that millionaire next door lifestyle, middle class people that become financially independent, they stay in their homes for decades. They're not always moving every couple years. Moving is expensive. There's realtor fees. There's all the legal and tax fees that go along with it. Getting utilities hooked up and paying movers. The wear and tear it takes on your furniture. The need to buy new furniture to fit in your new house. It goes on and on and on. If you're not going to be somewhere for 15 or 20 or 30 years, again, maybe you should think about renting. Scale down your lifestyle. Live a nimble life. Make sure that when you're going to buy that home, you're going to be in there for a couple decades. That's ultimately how you're going to build wealth. The other thing I would tell you to do when you're taking out that mortgage, and this goes back to how I started the discussion about debt in and of itself isn't bad. It's that debt lets you leverage your current income and it enables you to buy more than you can really afford. 
So when you're looking at that home, when you're taking out that mortgage, not only don't bite off more than you can chew, but how big of a bite do you need to begin with? And what I'm saying there is scale back. Do you really need that big of a house? Do you need that McMansion? Does every one of your kids need their own bedroom? Do you need a four-car garage? Not only don't overextend yourself, but don't just buy a house to keep up with the Joneses. Buy what you need. Buy what you can use. Buy a house that's close to where you work so you don't waste time and money commuting. Buy a house in a safe neighborhood so that you and your family are protected from violent crimes and burglaries. Buy your house in an area where you have like-minded people, people that you aspire to be like. Because remember, when you look at your friends, you look at your future. You and your spouse, you want to be around people that inspire you, people that will help you on your personal journey to build wealth. Same with your children. You don't necessarily want to buy a house just because it's in the greatest school district. You want to buy a house that puts your kids in contact with the best opportunity, just good, solid people a safe environment. Now as far as actually doing the math on whether you should pay that mortgage off sooner or later, again this is a fairly simple exercise in terms of the math. Look at what interest rates you're actually paying, say perhaps in these low interest rate environments that we live in now you're paying somewhere probably between three and a half and four percent. Historically that's a very low amount, at least over the last 35 years it is. Now with inflation running at less than two percent, you're ending up with a net interest rate payment of around one and a half, two percent, something like that. Again, that historically, that's a very low amount. And so I would understand why people would be tempted not to pay that back anytime soon. It probably makes economic sense. But to make that work, you have to have the discipline. What you have to do is force yourself to live well within your means, to acknowledge because you have a low interest rate and hopefully because you didn't buy too much of a house, you have a lot of money left over at the end of the month. You're not living paycheck to paycheck. And so don't be tempted to spend or waste that money. Set that money aside. Learn about investing opportunities. Perhaps you should put that money in the stock market where you can get better returns. Perhaps you should study the real estate market more and maybe you want to buy rental homes or rental properties. But look at ways to generate an income with that money or find ways to invest that money in things that are going to appreciate. So don't take that extra money every month and buy more furniture or more clothes or more vacations or bigger vehicles, or second or third homes. That's where people get into trouble. If you're not going to pay off your mortgage, then just don't blow the money on other things. That's the risk, and that's the reality. Look around you. That's what all your neighbors are doing. They're not saving. They're blowing their money. Now, there's a lot of other things to consider, for example, like your age. During your working years, you may think it's beneficial to have a mortgage. But again, in relation to your age, I don't know about you, but I certainly wouldn't want to be making mortgage payments when I'm retired. So consider your age. Consider how much longer you have to work. Maybe you can maintain that debt while you're working, but definitely think about eliminating it before you hit retirement. Okay, two more things to consider on the mortgage, and then I'll wrap this up, and then I want to talk a little bit about propaganda. And those last two things are, don't always follow the conventional wisdom. Financial advisors will most likely tell you not to pay off your house. In my opinion, I think that's more in their self-interest than in yours. You see, if you pay off your $300,000 house, and all that money is sitting in your house, then that's $300,000 that your financial advisor can't invest for you. Or better yet, let me say, that's $300,000 that your financial advisor can't charge you commission and fees on. Okay, so again, you draw your own conclusions on that. And then in terms of your mortgage, I want you to think in other areas where you may be inclined to save. For example, people will say, well, I'm not going to pay off my mortgage because I'm getting it at such a low interest rate. And I'm going to take that extra money and I'm going to put it away in a 529 program. I'm going to save my kid's education. Well, that's very noble and that's very generous of you and that's showing responsibility. But let me give you a little bit of an alternative perspective. 
You see, you have a responsibility to take care of yourself in retirement, but you don't necessarily have a responsibility to pay your kids' way through college. Maybe they'll get a better education if they either fund it themselves or fund a good bit of it themselves. So in terms of the mortgage, rather than you having a mortgage and taking that money and saving it for your kid's education, why don't you consider making extra payments on your mortgage when your kids are little? You know, pay it off in, say, 15 years instead of 30. Then when your kids do go to college, if they need some assistance from you, you can take that monthly payment that used to be going to your mortgage, which is no longer going because your house is paid off, and you can use a portion of that extra money to help your kids with their tuition. In effect, you're just going to cash flow it out of your existing income. And that's going to be free income because now your mortgage is paid off. You're living there, free and clear. I just offer that as another alternative for you to think about. So just consider your lifestyle, or better yet, consider the lifestyle that you want to have, that of being financially independent. Now let's get back to the title of this episode. I named it, Mortgage Debt is Flaxen Shackles. You may not be familiar with the term flaxen, but that's like a thin, fine thread, like a golden or a silky thread. It feels real fine. It feels real soft. It's enticing to you. It's comfortable. You don't notice it as those threads are being gently wrapped around your wrists. Each individual thread is very weak, so you don't notice it as a threat. But with each twist and each wind, every time that thread goes around and around your wrists, that's what your debt is like. That's what mortgage debt is like, automobile loans, student loans, credit card debt, all these different things that you don't pay for out of your regular paycheck. It's that flaxen cord, that flaxen thread. It slowly gets wrapped around your wrists, and pretty soon, you're handcuffed, or you're shackled with that debt. You're in bondage. You find yourself in misery. You have a bunch of things that you either don't want or don't need, and you have bills that you can't pay for them. Don't let your debt be a flaxen shackle around your life. Live responsibly. Live the well-steading lifestyle. You want to own your house. You don't want your house to own you. And finally, I'll finish up with a couple articles I read in the news. These items reminded me of Wealth Building Principle number 8, Decrypt Propaganda. I saw an article today about WebMD receiving $13.9 million to promote Obamacare. Again, in my opinion, that's a classic example of government propaganda. The government is taking away your earnings, they're taxing you, they then take that income and they use it to pay off people in the media, people in corporate America, crony capitalists, they fund those enterprises, and they promote their propaganda with the tax dollars that they've taken from you. It was $13.9 million to WebMD. I mean, that's just a drop in the bucket. But it's pervasive. It happens throughout our media. It happens throughout corporate America. I find it disgusting. On a similar note, and this is something that came out quite a while ago from uh, the New York Times. I don't remember if I mentioned or not on a previous podcast, but someone had tweaked me recently when I mentioned that I, that I do read the New York Times. I actually said I monitor the New York Times. I don't necessarily read it. But again, you have to take truth where truth is. And sometimes even the New York Times slips up and they tell the truth. In this particular article, the Times is reporting from Hong Kong and they're talking about the chairman of Bloomberg. Now, you may be familiar with Mayor Bloomberg from New York. Well, his business, the way he made his money was through financial news. Bloomberg, the company offers news terminals to all the major financial companies. It's sort of like an Internet or a Google or a Twitter on steroids. Over these specific uh, networks and terminals, you're able to get the latest financial news from Bloomberg from all around the world. So it can help you trading in stocks and commodities, trading bonds, things like that. They get the news before the rest of us. Well, Bloomberg had been pretty critical of the Chinese government. You know, just over the last year, we've seen another change, a shift over in leadership in the Chinese communist leadership. Well, that leadership has come down hard on Bloomberg, apparently. 
and they must have told the Bloomberg Corporation that they didn't like the reporting that they were doing on the Chinese government. Now, I don't know exactly what took place, but if you read through this New York Times article, you can see that the Chinese government, they apparently weren't very happy with the news coverage they were getting from Bloomberg, and so they must have put the screws on the company. So they must have said something like, look, if your news coverage is going to be unfavorable to our communist government, then we're not going to let you do business here. Now, again, we don't know exactly what took place, but we do know that those Bloomberg terminals, each terminal has a subscription of $2,000. That's $2,000 a month. So these are very valuable cash stream sources to Bloomberg. They're not going to want to jeopardize not being able to have access to a country like China. They're going to want those $2,000 a month terminals everywhere they can get them. So what does the chairman of Bloomberg say? Does he stand up to the Chinese government? Of course not. So in this New York Times article, and again, I said you got you to gotta look through these things and monitor them and glean the truth when you can. Look for those little nuggets of gold. Because this article quotes the Bloomberg chairman as saying that they're going to reconsider the coverage on the Chinese government. In effect, that they're going to squelch it. And in reference to these articles that were critical of the Chinese government, the chairman says that, you know, they're going to stop doing this. And here's his quote. Because they jeopardize the huge sales potential for its products in the Chinese market. Unquote. So there you have it. Bloomberg doesn't care about providing news. It doesn't care about its customer base where it wants to get them the most accurate and reliable news. No, it cares more about making $2,000 a month on these terminals. Again, that's just my opinion. That's the way I read the article. Now, of course, they kind of shadow it and say, well, this is not our core coverage. We shouldn't be talking about government corruption. We should stick to business reporting. Well, don't you think that crony capitalism and corruption in government, whether it's a Chinese government or the American government, don't you think that relates to financial markets? I do. But I'm sure that that kind of thinking would keep me from being the chairman of Bloomberg. One last thing I'll cover in this podcast, and this doesn't necessarily relate to propaganda, but I did see it in the news today, and I thought it was worthy of mentioning. There have been several articles out about stores that sell guns and ammunition and, and how the uh, the banks have been squeezing down on them because of the Obama administration, how they're not only trying to prevent legal sales over the Internet or at gun shows, and how they're even trying to clamp down on sales of guns at, at, at uh, you know traditional brick-and-mortar stores. One way they're doing this is, is by preventing credit card payments or, or stopping uh, you know, credit card scanner uses, denying these gun shops um, bank accounts, and denying them access to normal bank transactions. Well, anyways, I don't want to get into the whole details of the article, but my point on this was you have to watch where the government's trying to clamp down. And I think it's interesting that they have an agency called the ATF that's specifically directed at regulating alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Now, from a taxing standpoint, you can understand perhaps, why they would be concerned with alcohol and tobacco. Because those are major sources of income for the government. And so they want to stop bootlegging and tax avoidance in those products. So that sort of makes sense, from the again, from the revenue-generating standpoint. But why throw in firearms? Why throw in ammunition into that mix? Firearms and ammunition really don't account for a large amount of tax receipts. So it's not about the money. So what's it about? Well, think about it in a societal breakdown, in a societal collapse. And just go back in history and study this, whether it's post-World War II Germany or any other civilization that collapsed. What are the three most valuable products? Well, you may say, well, hey, it's going to be gold and silver or maybe food and water. Well, yeah, those are valuable commodities, no doubt. But again, go back and read your history. Now, I'm a student of history, and I've been particularly interested in prisoner of war history. Some of that is because my grandfather was a prisoner of war during World War I. But just the survival ability of our servicemen has always impressed me with the hardships that they suffered in prisoner war camps. So I've studied these, these people's autobiographies. I remember reading stories about American soldiers in the Korean War 
They were so decimated and so broken down that when they got their final rations, they'd trade their food to get one last cigarette. They'd smoke that cigarette and then they'd lay down and die. So the reason I bring that up is because I want to re-ask that question about what are the valuable commodities when a society breaks down. Yes, it's food and water and yes, it's probably gold and silver. But don't underestimate the value of vices. Alcohol and tobacco have always and will always be prime movers in an economy, and that's even in an economy that's collapsed. So in a grid-down situation, alcohol, tobacco, and I'll add firearms and ammunition will be key bartering instruments. And so not coincidentally, that's why I think that our government has an agency that's called the ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. They're well aware of the relationship of those three commodities, and they're probably less concerned about controlling them in peacetime than they are about controlling them in times of economic collapse. Now, I'm in no way predicting an economic collapse, nor do I even think we're close to one. Yes, we could perhaps see a correction in the stock market. Absolutely, we could perhaps see a bear market, but not a collapse. I just bring that up because of the article I read today about the continuing saga of how our government goes out of its way to take ammunition and guns away from its citizens. And you have to ask yourself, why? All the problems in the world, why would they want to disarm their loyal citizens? Well, it's Friday afternoon. I think I'll wrap up this podcast and go out and shoot my 357. So again, thank you for spending time here on the Wellsteading Podcast. With that, we'll wrap things up. Again, welcome to all of our new listeners. I want to thank each of you for taking some of your valuable time and spending it here with me on the Wellsteading Podcast. I appreciate you listening. If you have questions or comments for me, things you'd like to hear talked about on future shows, you can get in contact with me through the website. That's wellsteading.com. Until next time, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.